Hey, welcome to the Hustle Differently podcast, a space for millennial professionals who are navigating career curveballs while driving closer to Christ. I'm Adriana, and each episode I chat with millennial professionals about the spiritual lessons they've learned in their career journey. On today's episode, I chat with Tewa Oyurende, who is currently a dermatology resident at the Harvard Combined Dermatology Program in Boston. She is also the creator of the Not Another Doctor blog. We talk about racism in the dermatology field and hear stories about Tewa instilling faith in her patients and maintaining her faith as a doctor and Christian. So let's jump into the conversation. Hey Tewa, I am so excited to have you here on the podcast. To start off, tell us a little bit about why you decided to become a dermatologist. It's so great to catch up with you too, because, you know, we just haven't gotten to talk in such a long time. So this is exciting. On my surgery rotation in medical school, and there was this older Black woman who came in, she had a breast mass. We all assumed it was breast cancer, but they took a sample and it was melanoma. It was skin cancer. She said, I didn't even know Black people could get skin cancer is what she told me. She died six weeks later. The part that we found in the breast was a met. It had spread from whoever knows where the initial skin cancer was. It had spread throughout her body. When they did the scans, it was in her lungs, it was in her bones, and she died shortly thereafter. And I remember just thinking like, no one would have thought this woman had skin cancer. No one would have screened her for skin cancer. No, Cause like black people don't get skin cancer in quotes is like the thought. And so I think those things were the things that, okay, we need some more Black people focusing on the skin and on Black people within dermatology. And so that's kind of my kind of roundabout journey to it. This is a great reason to become a dermatologist because I remember growing up and hearing that Black people don't get skin cancer. We don't need sunscreen. Sunscreen makes you darker, you know, and things like that. And it wasn't until I was in college and I realized that skin cancer does not discriminate. And, you know, even having friends who struggled with acne and going to, you know, white dermatologists and giving them sort of like medication that didn't work for their skin, their skin tone and things like that. Like the importance of black dermatologists is is super, super important. You know, I believe that it's equally important for followers of Christ to think critically about how the industries we work in can be more just and beneficial for more people. You talked a little bit about that, but want to hear a little bit more about, you know, what changes would you like to see in in your industry and dermatology and medicine to make it more just and beneficial for people, especially for people who are marginalized and oppressed? Absolutely. I think we we are have we have a growing amount of awareness in medicine as a whole that there is a difference something is different about the outcomes for black patients you know versus other patients we've known it for a while and you know we've talked about it but it hasn't been i think recently it's really been brought up especially with covid seeing how many more black people were dying than white people specifically, but also Lat- Latinos and Blacks were dying at much higher rates than their Caucasian counterparts. I think this was the first time that I really saw the medical community wake up and be like, whoa, this is actually weird. What's going on here? You know, because we talk so much about things that almost make it seem like it's the person's fault. Okay, well, you know, they have more hypertension because they don't work out and they eat bad and they eat chitlins and they eat pork and they eat all these things. And so, you know, that's what's going on. But I think we started realizing that it's more than just lifestyle. It's more than just comorbidities. That's contributing to Black people having different outcomes. And so discussion is important. And so I'm excited about the fact that we're talking more about it, but then we have to go the extra mile and really start figuring out 
what are the differences, right? And when we say racism, what does that actually mean? Like, what does it look like? Like, if I am a Black person going into the hospital for a specific problem, what does racism do to me in that instance? Does racism mean that they're less likely to give me a pain medication when I'm in pain? Or they're less likely to listen to me when I say I'm in pain and that leads to a death that happens often in childbirth for Black women? Does racism in that instance mean if I say I have chest pain, they're less likely to take me to the cath lab, which is where they can look and see if someone's having a heart attack and immediately remove the blood clot to save that person's life? And that happens in cardiology all the time. So like, what does racism actually mean? in medicine instead of because we just say it we throw it around and people are like oh I'm not racist and then they can kind of get off but no like what does racism actually look like in the actions of people who consider themselves not to be racist so that we can figure out systems in place to prevent that from happening we talk a lot about the airline industry in medicine because you know because of how big of a deal it is to have that many lives in the air in each airplane, they have all these systems and these checklists, and you just have to go through it every single time. And multiple people have to go through it to prevent a mistake from happening because they know that a mistake will lead to the loss of so many lives. And I think that's how we have to approach racism in medicine. It can't be an emotional approach alone. It has to be a very systematic approach. Okay, so we have systematic racism, so we need to have a systematic anti-racism campaign within medicine so that there's deliberate actions that are done. And I, I think it just comes down to really researching what the, the baseline, what, what the problems are. And so I'm excited about that because in dermatology, we're starting to learn when it, what racism looks like in dermatology. It looks like training at a dermatology program that doesn't show you any pictures of black skin. So you can't identify rashes in black skin. They don't take, you know, they might not take certain insurances so they see less black patients. So then you haven't practiced on black skin. So me, non-racist Joe, goes to a residency program, only sees pictures of white skin, only sees white patients, and then I go to New York and now I have black patients. Obviously, I'm not going to do a good job, even if I love the Lord and I love people and I want to be a great doctor, but I can't because I didn't learn it. And so that's what we're trying to change in dermatology, training people, showing the pictures, bringing the patients so that everyone can identify it. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't matter how much you know about the medical field, it doesn't matter how much you want to exude the love of Christ, there needs to be an understanding that there are blind spots in wanting to fill in those gaps. So you're a very captivating storyteller and you have a blog called Not Another Doctor Blog. I want to invite those listening to check out Tewat's blog because there's funny stories like her match story. There's also stories that will make you angry, like when a patient called you the N-word. There are stories that are just very insightful that you won't even know and imagine happen in a hospital. I want to talk to you about why you decided to start this blog. Yeah, so I remember the day that I first started thinking, I need to write these things down. It was a day that I was on call and this particular call was a 28-hour call. So I was in the hospital for 28 hours straight, one shift, you know, you know, tired as everything, kind of just recently started my first year of, of, of residency in internal medicine at the time. And, you know, I actually wrote a story about this. It was probably one of the first or second stories where there was like this older gentleman and he was a little bit, you know, out of it. And he, you know, we were trying to get him to to just kind of eat or to lay down or something. And he just started running 
naked down the hall and we were all chasing him. And it's like, you know, 13 doctors and nurses like running after him, like really trying to catch him before he gets like on the elevator and goes out, you know, into the cold. And so it was kind of funny. But then, you know, we finally got him back into his bed because it wouldn't have been funny if he fell. So thank God he did not fall. Anyway, kind of got him back into his bed, got him, you know, had a sitter, someone to watch him. And then I went to take a nap. And then I woke up because someone was coding, which means basically that they had died. And a code blue just means like they don't have a heartbeat. And so we, I had to run from the, the call room to like do chest compressions. For my, it was my first time doing chest compressions on a patient. And, you know, the intensity of that moment, like literally, like the movies don't really do it justice. You are pressing down on someone's chest with enough force to crack their ribs and you are feeling their ribs cracking. You are like literally seeing their lifeless body flop up and down with each press as you do it. And the contrast, and he died, right? And so the contrast between like running down the hallway, like laughing earlier and like literally pressing on a chest of somebody as they're dying. I just was like, you can't make this up. You can't make up these emotions. And when it, if we think that these experiences don't influence how we are as people, don't influence how we treat each other when these things aren't happening based on how tired we are or how upset we are. Or like if I were to leave work like that and then go and be mean to someone on the street, they're just like, oh, she's a bad person. But like, I'm like, I just witnessed a death, you know? And so there are so many things that go into making us human. And I just remember that day being like, I have to write this stuff down because I, I don't want to forget this intensity of emotion. And then as days went on, just more stuff ha kept happening that was super intense or funny or sad or angering. And I was just like, I think in order to teach empathy and to learn empathy, I have to write these stories down and try to analyze my interactions with people. When we think about hospitals, we definitely focus a lot more, and it makes sense why we do, on the families and the patients and the emotions that they're going through. And I know even myself never really thinking or considering, like, how does this affect the doctors and the medical staff and the emotions that they may feel? And kind of want to talk to you a little bit about what do you draw from and how do you really navigate the emotions? Yeah, no, I think thinking from the standpoint as someone who is always looking for a story has helped a lot because there's a lot of bad behavior on the both on both the, the the standpoint of the physicians and the patients and the nurses and the ancillary staff. Like there's a lot of things that go wrong or that are not ideal that happen. And if you don't think about it from the standpoint of like, what is this person going through? What might have made them do that? then you'll just be really upset all the time, especially in, in medicine, especially in the hospital, you know? And I think especially when it comes to being a physician, you're seeing so much pain and trauma. We see so much trauma for such a long time. Like in med school, you start off doing anatomy where you are literally peeling the skin off of a dead person's face like it's normal. Like that's how we start off, right? And you're like fresh out of college, literally like using a bone saw to crack someone's sternum open so you can see the heart, which is important to understand the body. But I don't think people realize over time, seeing all these things that are actually really traumatic to see so that we can learn and become good doctors, it's going to desensitize you. And then you end up being a little bit crass or you end up not having all the emotions you need to have to realize why, oh, this particular woman is cursing at me because she is terrified. I'm not terrified in this moment because I've seen 
This happened to multiple people, but she is terrified because she's sick and she doesn't know what's going to happen. And so I think for patients, I, there have been times where maybe I didn't respond the way a patient would have expected me to respond. And I wish that they could understand that it's hard for me to even pull that emotion out all the time because then I wouldn't be able to work. Like if I responded with the, with the level of emotion that a patient responded every time something bad happened, I wouldn't go to work because just, it just wouldn't be possible. You'd just be on the ground crumpled up all the time, you know? Whereas on the other hand, as physicians, we have to remember this is not this person's 100th rodeo. This is their first and only rodeo. Like this is the fight of their life. Like this is huge for them. And so we have to meet somewhere in the middle. And I think telling stories helps a lot because then patients can understand physicians and physicians can understand patients. I do think it's more on the part of the physician to understand the patient just because it's our job to take care of them. So it should be our job to understand them. But it really does become very hard because you're seeing multiple patients in a day and you have so much to do and then you still have your own life going on. So many physicians are also patients. And I see a lot of bad behavior, understanding why, but like, we don't always really get to have these conversations across the aisle. Like doctors talk to doctors about it. Patients talk to patients about it. It's so funny. Like I listen to sermons and, you know, the pastors love to say like, the doctor said something, but that ain't, you know, God rebuked the doctor. Da, da, da. And I'm like, no, don't rebuke me though, you know, but I get it. it, it but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing being both human and doctor, right? Just as it's interesting being both human and patient. And, and trying to reconcile all those things. And so it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and from the standpoint of being a Christian and trying to remember the love of Christ in, that, in these moments, it's, it's easy to forget when you're getting cursed out or when you're getting called out of your name or getting called an N-word, which has happened multiple times by patients and things like that, right? And so it's like, okay, I'm going to just step away. I'm going to pray real quick, and I'm going to come back and address this. <laughs> Yeah, that's such a that's such a difficult dance to try to like navigate and and balance through. And especially when people's like lives are on the line, right? It's a tense amount of pressure. You wrote on one of your Instagram posts and I thought it was so profound and I want to read it. It's from a it's from a little while ago. So I don't know if you remember it. You said as a healthcare provider, you go through your career trying to balance optimism and realism when it comes to expectations for a patient's outcome. Trying to be optimistic enough to give your patient the absolute best while being realistic enough that you don't become depressed, cynical, apathetic when things don't change for the better. Sometimes it almost feels dangerous to dare to hope when it comes to wanting positive change for a patient. I was like, whoa, that's so intense. Really? honestly, you know, it, it is scary to dare to hope because when you start hoping, okay, now you have opened up the chance for the depression that comes along with failure in medicine. The same depression that each, like when, God forbid, but like when someone loses a parent, there's a depression that comes along with that, right? If I were to hope the same way that each patient's family member hopes for their family member each time, then I would just be depressed all the time if they fail. Because by virtue of the fact that we're in medicine, we're seeing the the more severe cases. You know what I'm saying? Like people that don't feel like they need a doctor stay home. So that means I'm already seeing the people who aren't well and many of them are not going to do well. And so that is a really tough thing. I remember I had this one patient and she was close to my age 
She was funny. She was this black lady. I liked her a lot. She was from D.C. She was from Southeast. So she was like, I was like, yo, this is like my people right here. And, you know, she had a really aggressive form of cancer. She died shortly after me meeting her. And I remember she asked me to pray with her. And so I did. And I remember just being like, okay, God, you have to heal this lady. Like, yeah, like it's pretty impossible. We're not even really treating her right now because it got to a point where she was so advanced in her in her cancer that the treatments would not have helped her cancer. They would not have prevented her from dying. And they would have just given her all the side effects of the medications, right? So she was not on treatment. So she was just in the hospital because she couldn't keep anything down. She was throwing up. She was, you know, her eyes were yellow. I mean, it was... It was just crazy to see her. When I first met her, she looked normal. But by the end of the month that she was in the hospital, she was one fourth of the weight that she was when she came in. Her eyes were yellow. Her skin, even though she was dark skin, you know, like my complexion, her skin was like a weird green color when you mix brown with yellow. It was it was unbearable to watch. But I would still go in her room every day. We would joke. We would pray together. And she was like, God's going to heal me. And so when she when she died, it was really rough for me because I did get to a place where I was like, you know what, God, I have, I'm gonna have faith. God's gonna heal her. You know what I mean? Like it's gonna be a miracle. And around that time, I started praying for all of my patients, not not with them, but for them. And I would pray, God, I pray that my patients get better in a way that is abnormal. I pray that my patients get get better in a way that doesn't make sense. That my patients get better more than you know, more than the norm, right? And so when she died, I just was like, okay, I need to not be hoping like this because it, it almost it almost messed with my faith too. You know what I mean? So it was just a weird thing. And I think obviously the place that I was then, I'm not there now. I'm, I'm in a place where I think I have a little bit more balance. But at that point, I was like, nah, we're just going to. We're just going to do the medicine. We're going to stick to that. And we're not going to do all this prayer for these patients because like, I can't, I just cannot, you know? Hey, I want to take a moment and ask for a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, take a screenshot of you listening to the Hustle Differently podcast and post it to your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, wherever you social. But if you're posting on Instagram, make sure to tag at Hustle Differently. By you posting, it will help more people find the podcast. I appreciate your support. All right, let's get back to the convo. It's such a bold prayer and it's a prayer that comes from the heart, right? Like you really care for people and you also believe in the power of God. And sometimes we see it in even in our own lives, right? We sometimes what we pray for, we don't get. So you say you have a lot more balance now. Like what is that um, sort of balance between your Christian faith and your work? What What does that really look like for you in order to really maintain and excel in the two? right? And really providing the care for people as, you know, Jesus told us to, to care for those who are sick. I think the balance is, I still pray that prayer, actually. I still pray that my patients do better than is normal. And sometimes I feel like that's the case. And sometimes I don't feel like that's the case, but I still pray it. And I think there has to be a little bit of distance and not everyone would agree. There are some doctors that don't put any distance, but I think for me, what I do is I pray and I ask God to do his will. And I try to do my best to accept whatever happens as, and I don't want to say as his will, because I actually don't think that everything happens in this world is God's will. 
I know that's like not everyone's theology. Some people are like, oh, it's always God's will that happens. I don't agree because then there wouldn't be sin, right? Like I think there are a lot of things that happen that aren't God's will. But I, I pray for God's will and then whatever happens, I have to just accept. But I try to maintain faith that God is in control and that God can do what he's going to do and, and understand that this is an imperfect world, you know? But the biggest thing that I try to do is, you know, doing all to the glory of God. So that looks what that looks like to me is I'm still going to provide the patient this, the best care and I'm going to do all that I can do. I'm going to like look up studies to put them into if there if there's a clinical trial they could add on. Like if even if there's nothing, if there's if there's a single shred of hope that I know about, because we don't always know. Right. But like if I know of something that can be done, I'm going to advocate for it to be done. Because we can't always do it because I'm a resident still. So it's not like I have full control over the patient, right? But, you know, anything that I can advocate for, I'm going to advocate for. And then I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to be really kind. And then I'm going to, I usually tell my patients, you know, often after the attending or my bosses will like leave the room. I often tell them, hey, besides all we just said, this is going to sound really weird. But I want you to believe that this can get better. And they'll look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, no, I really need you to understand that what you believe has a huge impact on what happens. And I usually tell them that, and I'm like, I really just, just trust me on this. I need you to believe that it can get better. I need you to be excited that it's going to get better. I need you to work with us. And I say that. I don't know if it helps, but I know people feel better about it. And I know people seem to like me and want to come back and see me because of that energy. I don't know whether or not that really helps them physically, but <laughs> that is my like trying to instill faith in my patients, even if I don't specifically mention God when I say that, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. So that's what I do now. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, I don't have full control, but I just try to do all I can do and put the rest in God's hands. That's so powerful. It honestly is. It's so powerful. I know during times of like sickness and we're unsure, like people need hope. You never really know if that one thing you say is just what people needed to like affirm. Like, I I want to believe, right? I want to believe that this is going to get better, but like I'm afraid to believe because there's uncertainty. And honestly, this is the same struggle we all have in our personal lives too, you know? So this is actually the struggle of, of the Christian. This is probably the fundamental struggle, believing God, right? And having faith in God when what you see does not match what is supposed to be, right? That's like the whole, you know, when I when you read in like Hebrews, when God is like, this person believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And we read the Bible back and it seems like things were so clear cut, but I bet that things were not super clear cut, you know what I mean, to these people as they were living it. And so their job was to believe God or to believe what they thought was God, because the gag is... You don't even always know it's God. That's the gag we don't want to talk about in Christianity. Oh, just do what God said. But what did God say? Because I don't know. Is that me or is that God? You know? So to me, that's like the central, that's the central struggle of of being a Christian is like staying in a place where you're going to believe even if you don't see. That's making me think like even in my journey and in our journey, like really being able to believe in uncertainty. It is a trial and error sometimes. And like, honestly, people in the Bible were finessing it and we're finessing it too. (laughs) Honestly, we're all finessing our way through it and praying and hoping and trying to remain in faith and glorify God to the best of our ability to the best of the knowledge that we have right now and hoping tomorrow we'll have more knowledge that'll be rooted in the power of God and all that he can do in us and in and the world. 
this is something that I also mention often that people get upset, like, oh, don't say Jesus can't do anything. But there are the Bible literally says that because of a lack of faith in certain cities, actually the city where he was from, he could not do many miracles. Like the Bible literally says it like, and because of the lack of faith in this city, Jesus could not do many miracles, right? And so I think about, and so he left and, and went to other cities to do other miracles, right? And it's crazy to me because I wonder a lot when I go through the world and when I think about my patients, when I think about life, like how much are we not seeing from God because we didn't have enough faith? And, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, that's like a bad, that's bad theology. Like you shouldn't say that. Like God's going to do what he's going to do. But then you see Bible verses like that where Christ is like, ah, like y'all don't believe. So, you know, um, and I just find that so interesting. And I, I, I always pray too for myself, like, okay, Lord, I don't want to miss anything that you might be willing to give me because I don't believe that you're going to do it. You know, likewise, I, I used to feel guilty when things didn't go well for my patients. I'm like, is it because I didn't believe enough? Is it because they're, they didn't believe enough? And, and then is it toxic to think that it's my fault if the things didn't go well or that it's their fault or that it's someone's fault? Maybe it's no one's fault. Maybe it's just a messed up world. And so like trying to balance all of those beliefs and, and trying to balance that like faith with just like, with just like resting in God. So for you, when you notice, you know, your faith may not be where it needs to be, what practically do you do, if anything, to help sort of like equal the equilibrium and get your faith to where it needs to be in order for you to be in a place where you're rooted in God and could perform or act or think in the way that you're glorifying him? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is I have to check what I'm listening to and who I'm around. I don't believe in the whole, like, you only need to be around positive people. Because I know I think that it's important for positive people actually sometimes to be around people that aren't as positive as them so they can help be a, a light in that space too. But what I find is that maybe my balance is off. Like, maybe there are some people I need to talk to a little less. Because, you know, we all have those friends that every time you talk, girl... Girl, still single. You still single? Yes, girl. You know, you know, it's so hard for a black woman to get a man out here. Like, you're going to be 40 and single still, you know? And like, it's like, you can't, like, sometimes I'm like, okay, I, I need to pull back from speaking to people who are like, oh yeah, these patients always die. Or like, you know, those kinds of things. And then also in, in addition to just pulling back from talking to those people or being around those people, I try to surround myself with people, sounds, songs, sermons, speeches for people that think differently, you know, and it's not even always spiritual people. So for example, I love sermons and I, when I'm in a really bad funk, I do a sermon a day, like, and just listen to like faith-based like, sermons specifically about faith. Cause usually those, like, you're going to be hearing not just the pastor, but the people in the crowd kind of like affirming the kind of thing that I need to be thinking. But then also besides just church stuff, I listen to Oprah. She's a very positive person. She's very like, think positively, think about this. You can do anything like people who who think about possibility. And and so if I'm listening to people like Oprah, Michelle Obama, you know, these kind of people, Brene Brown, these kind of people all day, every day for a few days, then what I find is that I'm more excited about possibilities than I was when I was in that funk or not believing. And then of course the word of God and of course encouraging songs. But I find that sometimes I need to check what I've been listening to as well love that it's like a coping kit right like like you understand yourself well enough to know okay like this is the time where I need this to pull this from my my kit you know 
to like help me. I really like that. And and I love that you you said you incorporate people like Brene Brown, who her podcast is really amazing, and Michelle Obama's book, which was phenomenal. And I think a lot of Christians sometimes we think that we only need to pull from Christian people, but there are people out there who do not profess themselves to or identify themselves as Christian, but they are reflecting the character of Christ and they're doing work that reflects the character of Christ and we can learn something from them too. So I want to thank you so much for for joining. I don't know if there's any sort of like parting words or advice that you have. I know I have a friend who is in med school and she's studying for her step one exam. And I know that's part of your blog, not another doctor blog as well, providing advice to medical students. Yeah, I think my my biggest advice that I like to give is a lot of the times the deepest desires in our hearts were placed there, in my opinion, by God. We talk a lot about our desires being evil, and sometimes we do, but I actually think our deepest desires aren't evil. Like the surface desires could be like maybe if you want to, I don't know, steal something. That's a surface evil desire, but the deeper desire is probably that you want food or you want to be nourished or you want to be prosperous. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of, I, I think our deepest desires really are the Holy Spirit. That's that's my personal belief. And the reason why I say this is because a lot of times people, they have a hard time figuring out where to place their faith. I think about faith as a stake that you place in the ground or you place in something because for me, faith has been a, a hard journey and a hard struggle. And the reason why I'm saying this now as advice to medical students or honestly anyone that's trying to be a professional and is trying to kind of climb the ranks of that is that like if you truly believe in the midst of you seeking God, you have a deep desire to be a physician, to be a lawyer, to be an engineer. Place your faith in the fact that God can do that for you and that that's the end goal. Like that's it. Like, okay, my faith is that I'm a doctor, even though you're not because faith is, first of all, you have to have hope to faith. You have, you have to have hope to have faith, right? Your hope Really, it's your your hope in something that you can't see the substance of that thing, right? And so it's kind of confusing when you think about it. But in my opinion, what I do is like, okay, I have this deep desire. I know I've been seeking God. I put my faith stake there. So that's the end goal. I know this is going to happen. So then the question is, what is the journey to get to that? So for that particular friend, okay, I know I'm going to pass step one and become a doctor. So the question isn't, am I going to become a doctor? Am I going to pass this exam? The question is, like, how do I get there? And I I personally find that that is a lot easier to wrap your head around than, like, is it going to happen? Am I going to fail? Am I going to be it? Like, no, just settle that. Settle that. You're going to be a doctor. God's going to take you through. So the question is, what's my next best step? There's a book called Bird by Bird. I don't remember who wrote it. And a beautiful line in the book is, like, you can make an entire journey with only the vision of three feet in front of you, basically talking about how like at nighttime when you drive a car and you have your headlights on, you can't see a mile down the road. You can only see a few feet in front of your car, but you can literally make a journey of a hundred miles like that. And I think that's how our lives are. So when you say, I know my end destination is this, your goal is now, God, give me a vision for three feet in front of me so I can just drive those three feet. And then he's going to give me vision for three feet again. Some Bible verses that help me. I pulled this up because I keep these on my phone. I'll just read a few verses that really help me in that particular journey. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's Psalms 37, 4. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. That's Psalm 37, 5. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. First Thessalonians 5.16. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalms 37, 7. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Mark eleven twenty four. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm thirty four ten. And lastly, I am come so that they may have life more abundantly. John ten ten. So when I think about those verses, it really encourages me that like, okay, these desires I have, it's not, it's not about whether or not God wants it for me or blah blah blah. Like, let me just settle myself that God is gonna. And and obviously, if something is not what God actually wants, then He'll redirect you. But like, I think settling that, like, okay, this is what's gonna happen. God's gonna do it okay, God, what do I do at this moment? As opposed to worrying about the whole journey and then things really do work out. So that's my biggest advice. And that's what I try to live every day. And I hope that it's helpful to somebody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can also access the show notes and transcripts on hustledifferently.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It will help this podcast reach more people and spark more conversations like this. Thank you for your support.